Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Today is a Tuesday episode, so with us is both our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren, and also uh, our friend and my uh, communications director, Corey Epstein. Hi, guys. How you doing? Uh, you know, I'm going to put that on my uh, LinkedIn page. Friend, friend and producer. producer. I think that's such a nice sound. I like it. It could even go like on your headstone. <laughs> Friend and oh, producer. That's Hugo a horrible Lincoln. thing no, no, to say. After my dad oh, and, and oh. journalist okay. and husband. We have a lot to cover today. Yeah. I'm going to take over for a second. But, okay. you know, it's Bradley's podcast, obviously. But so we're not we, going to spend 20 minutes discussing your headstone? Um, I hope not. <laughs> we, um, we're going to talk about your book today, which yep. comes out today, 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 today Tuesday, yeah. November 7th. And there's a, what, there's a party here at the bookstore, right? At P&T Network, 180 Orchard Street in Manhattan, starting at 6.30 p.m. Come on by if you're around. And that's open to the public? It is. Wow. That's so nice. Um, and we are going to talk, so we're going to talk about the writing of the book. Regular listeners have like, heard us talk about this a million times. But we're going to really get into some of the details. And I think I was thinking about this on the walk here. And one of the things that I want to talk about that's a little different than what where we've been on it is I really want to talk about like sort of like how it fits into your life and how you're able to do this thing while carrying on everything else that's going on. Yeah. And, and as a way to like kind of engage the listener and about like how, you know, people might be able to do something, whether it's write a novel or something else entirely yeah. that is like. Not part of their sort of it, job, it, not it, part it's of their personal life. I, really. I had lunch with someone on Friday. I'll, I'll get into it. And we were sort of talking about that generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a few thoughts. Great. And then we also are going to talk, we're going to save it for the end of the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about Mayor Adams, who has a whole bunch of problems all of a sudden, although he had I mean, some before and now he has more. Yeah, three, three, three big initials, <laughs> F, B, and I. <laughs> F, B, and I. So we obviously want to talk about that. So let's talk about the book. First of all, um, to follow up on what I was just saying. Yeah. Um, it's a really big day uh, because this has been, I mean, it hasn't been the longest process. You haven't, Pretty I mean, long. When did it start? Well, I mean, it really started when Steven Soderbergh read The Fixer and said to me, let's make this a TV show. And I started thinking about what that could be. And then um, the very first thing I did was I wrote a campaign plan, a fictional campaign plan, but a real campaign plan um, for how you would legalize flying cars in New York, L.A. and Austin. And then that ultimately turned into the the pilot, which Stephen and I worked on. Then I wrote nine more episodes. Then we started getting it out there. And our big meeting with Apple TV was supposed to be March 10th, 2020. That obviously went nowhere. Um, Stephen moved on to other stuff. I decided that I liked the concept and the characters too much to let it go. Spent a couple of years turning it into a novel. Uh, and it comes out today. And uh, the cool thing is Stephen's back and we're working on the show again. Let me say one detail that I remember from this part of it, the early days is um, Bradley was going on vacation with his family to Africa, mm-hmm. um, and he sent me, I think, three episodes that you wrote on your phone yeah, while because, on vacation. Yeah, on my phone. Well, yeah, not... Uh, so I, I didn't do it... Here's what. Here's the okay. the only I remember being completely blown I away. have blown was, away. I didn't write them on the Jeep. I kind of outlined them on the Jeep. Wait, I don't even know about the Jeep. So what do you mean you, the Jeep? Like, you were actually... When you go on safari, you're on a Jeep all day looking at animals, right? And you were like, fuck the animals. No, no, I work. totally loved it, but you're just sitting there, right? You know, so it was like... <laughs> It was kind of my subconscious was working, and I was kind of realizing plot points and stuff like that as I was sitting there. And then when we got back to the room, I would write. It's a little weird to write a, a whole script on, a, on an iPhone. Uh, I wish you're fast, though. You got like fun. you do the two thumbs, just boom, yeah, boom, boom, boom. yeah. But I, I still would wish that Apple would create a Blackboard. Blackberry-like keyboard. Well, I they have the attachment. Not anymore. No, no. Oh, it, really? it, I, I had bought at one point 25 of them on eBay because uh, I was so desperate to never run out. And then eventually they, they no longer are compatible. Oh, wow. Okay. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Me too. I mean, I never used them. But the um, 
So, so, wow. So you're on the safari. Do you think people are looking at you and being like, God, that's such a classic New Yorker. He's like buried in his phone. No, like, what the I'm, hell's not, he doing? I'm not, I'm not looking at the, on, on the, I'm in, I'm in the room for that. I'm not looking out on the Jeep. And also one of the nice things about a safari, if, if you're in a position to sort of stay at a, a really nice camp, what you're really buying is space, right? So instead of there being, you know, hundreds of people in, in dozens and dozens of Jeeps all surrounding one rhino, you know, basically it's you and no one else or maybe one other Jeep from people staying at the same camp and that's it. When Lyle and I were in Kenya a couple of years ago, he wanted to do a hot air balloon ride. And we did. And then the ride back, kind of you went through terrain where you could see some animals, but it was more like big public camps. And to show you sort of how selfish and spoiled we are, we had never experienced that before. And we're like, why are there like 13 other Jeeps around this zebra? And I was like, oh, because like most people don't get to do it the way you got to do it. So the reason why people didn't look at me and think I'm a New York asshole is only because there weren't people to begin with. Okay, let's back it up again and talk about the book, Flying Cars. So that's yeah. the original idea. Obviously, flying cars have nothing to do with your book, The Fixer. Talk about that sort of inspirational point, how you moved from the nonfiction book, which is The Fixer, to this flying cars idea. Like, how did Yeah, that well, I mean, look, let me, let me back it up by also saying that, that you're, this you're backing is it up even further. a lifelong dream of mine, right? right, was to publish novels. When I was in college, I was a creative writing major. I was in the creative writing program. And I was pretty good, right? And, and my view was I could make a living doing this. Uh, in fact, this one of the summers I took a t sitcom writing class at NYU, and the teacher wrote for Herman's Head. Do you remember that show? Yeah, um, sure. My favorite. And he called my parents and said, you got to make sure he does this for a living. And so I, I think there was a future there, but it wasn't National Book Award Pulitzer Prize future. It wasn't, you know, five number one bestsellers. It was, you know sitcom writer and because I'm good at, you know, figuring shit out, showrunner, right? And I probably would have had a nice career. But at the same time, I was working for Mary Rundell all through college, you know, 30 hours a week at City Hall. And um, politics was the other option. And I kind of felt like my ceiling to kind of impact the world was higher in politics. And I picked it and I, th I think it's worked out okay. Um, and what's what's cool about it is the experiences that I've had in politics um to two things. One, it gave me enough content to have an interesting novel to write. And two, you know, it was a career where I never stopped writing. I didn't write fiction for a long time. But, you know, even if it was banging out press releases for Chuck Schumer or memos for Mike Bloomberg or whatever it was, you know, I was always writing. And then eventually um, it got to come full circle. So I'm super excited about it. So but I didn't answer your question. No. No. So the question was, how did it happen? So, um, I'm just curious about the flying cars thing in specific. Like I how was just, I mean, I remember literally just sitting at my desk and thinking about like what would be something that's really out of the ordinary. The, the great part of my job, but also made it hard for this, is we do so much weird shit on a daily basis, right? We're already out there legalizing like ride sharing or scooters or on-demand weed delivery or fantasy sports betting or on-demand insurance or whatever it is, right? So like all of the stuff that seems fantastical, we're actually doing. So I had to find something that was even more fantastical. Uh, and at the time, although they've caught up quite a bit since, um, it was flying cars. And I had done enough work in transportation that even though I was not an eVTOL expert by any means, um, I understood the sector broadly and felt like I could take the lessons that I learned from Uber and Bird and other big transportation fights um, to this as well. Did you have a second choice? I don't even remember at this point, but what's interesting is on the off chance that this book does well enough that I get to write a sequel, that's what I have to figure out is what, what will the second campaign be? I don't know. 
Um, I was just going to say, let's hear it. Yeah, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I have, I have, I, I, I finished a new draft of the pilot this weekend and sent it out uh, to those guys. So I have at least nine more scripts to write before I can even think about um, the next book, if there is one. And I still have to do the final, final edit on the mobile voting book. So I, I'm, I'm not going to worry about this for a few months. So, um, okay, so you have the flying cars. And the main character um, is someone who runs a political consulting firm. Um, Nick Denavito. You run a con- political consulting firm. Talk about the relationship between the main character and you. You know, it, it's funny. This is true both for, for Nick, but but for a lot of the characters in the book. When I started writing it, they were based on real people. And I think that's probably true for most writers, right? Because you have to have something to anchor the, the character to. And then I think maybe also because it went through, you know, TV show and then a novel. Uh, and it just evolved so much over time. They really became their own people, um, and they, so so Nick is of course based on me. And I remember when my mom read the book, she's like, you know, why does your character have to be the bad guy? And it was like, well, it sort of evolved that way, you know. Um, and it makes it a more interesting book. But but I'll give you an example. Um, Mayor Navarro, who's the mayor of New York City in the book and, and a central character, was clearly based on Bill De Blasio, who I'm not the biggest fan of. Um, <laughs> biggest fan, and, no. and Navarro probably doesn't come off particularly well in the book. But what's interesting is over time it became Mayor Daly from Chicago. When I hear Navarro, when I write Navarro's dialogue, I hear Daly in my head, not De Blasio. So um, and so, what what is the characteristic of of Daly that's in the this book? This very frank, blunt, matter of fact style of speech. You know, very direct. You know, uh, profane, but you know, yeah, just uh, more interesting than De Blasio, basically. Yeah, yeah, and and smarter. I mean, he, actually, this is the thing. Navarro, De Blasio is not that intelligent, in my view, at anything other than running the 2013 campaign. Daly was a brilliant man. Navarro, to me, was a lot smarter than the real life De Blasio. Right. So, okay, so you mentioned the two characters. Navarro is kind of a complementary character, but there's another. I'm forgetting her name right now, but the main Lisa. Nick, Nick, Lisa. So, yeah. so the the relationship between Nick. Well, tell tell us a little bit about Lisa. Yeah. Then. So Lisa is Nick's protege. Um, she works as political consulting firm, and she's had this long, successful history in politics, and is running the flying cars campaign with Nick. Um, and in many ways, she's a lot like him in that she is strategic and she is ruthless and she is creative, um, but she has much more of a moral core and center than Nick. And so if Nick is a character that, that turns sort of sideways, Lisa is the one who's the contrast to him in many ways. And, and look, I, I would say that there's as much of me in Lisa as there is in, in Nick. Um, Point out I've, a couple of things that, that you're in. Well, well that, without that, giving her too much of the plot. You know, when the the one time that I was asked to do something illegal by Rod Blagojevich, I put a stop to it and I reported him, right? right? And so, you know, that's pretty clear. It always pissed me off when when sometimes people, I remember Ford Motor Company, they hired us, Tough Strategies, to do a campaign. And then apparently Bill Ford freaked out because he's like, I didn't like his tactics with Uber, which we fucking won, by the way, as well as your tactics, which are like 100 years old. Um and he worked for Blagojevich, so who knows how he'll act? And I'm like, we know how he'll act because in, unlike this theoretical thing for everyone else, in real life, I was asked to do something illegal, and I said no, and I reported it. Like, how much more do you want? Um, and so I, I think Lisa's based on me uh, in many ways, too. But she struggles. And the other thing with Lisa is the struggle with her childhood and her parents and their ambitions for her. And, you know, she's a, a, 
the child of Chinese immigrants, and they're very focused on their friends' kids who have become successful doctors and lawyers and investment bankers. And politics is this weird, nebulous field that, it, in reality, you know, it, it, it can be lucrative or prestigious, but most of the time it's, it's pretty rough, and her parents just couldn't derive the status that they wanted for themselves from their daughter's career. You know, and I had that too when I was, you know, went to law school, University of Chicago, you know, really good law school, and I had offers from you know, all kinds of law firms and had tons of student debt, and they were paying, I forget what it was, like 135 grand a year at the time, but that was back in like 1999. It was a crazy amount of money. And instead, I went back to the Parks Department at, I think, $28,000 a year, and my parents and a lot of people had a really hard time accepting and understanding that. Um, because it seemed crazy, right? It, it wasn't nearly as prestigious to tell your friends that your son's a you know, lackey at the Parks Department than an associate at, at you know, Davis Polk or Paul Weiss or wherever. And uh, the pay was a fraction, and I had these loans. You know, my view was, A, I got to do what feels right to me, and B, when the time comes to make money, I have no idea what I will do, but I have confidence that I will figure it out. And look, the nice thing is, I think that I did, and not only do I prefer the career that I've had to, if had I practiced law, but I think financially it's been a lot more lucrative too. So um, it's funny when you mentioned Blagojevich, uh, it feels like there's some Blagojevich in Nick, right? Yeah, um, you know, you know where it is. Nick is here's where Nick is not me, right? Okay. Nick is incredibly dynamic and charismatic and likable and he flashes a smile and you kind of just like him and forgive he's kind of a rogue um i'm i'm not really that right um and so nick has some definite blagojevich in him and that rod had this incredible magnetism that just drew people um and nick has that as well so i realize we've talked about some of the characters we've talked about the flying cars thing but what's the story of the novel if you had to really like distill it Yeah, I mean, the the story ultimately is you've got this disruptive new technology in the form of flying cars uh, made by a company called Flight Deck, whose CEO, Susan Howard, is sort of the type A, typical, intensely focused startup founder. Um, And in order for them to launch their product, they have this pesky little thing called regulations and permits and legalization. And they've got to figure out, um, against sort of all odds, how are they going to get this thing approved? Because everyone's against it, right? The regulators are like, why would we take this risk? It, it seems dangerous. Um, and then you've got, you know, Uber doesn't like it. The tax insurance doesn't like it. Neither of them want competition. The socialists don't like it because they see it as a toy for the rich. The trans unions don't like it because they're afraid it'll put workers out of jobs. Um, the Audubon Society doesn't like it because they're afraid that it's bad for birds. Um, the Russian mob doesn't like it because they own tons of taxi licenses, especially here in New York City. And so you have all of this opposition, both sort of politically and logically. And yet still, the question is, can you show this thing is just so fucking cool, so exciting that at the end of the day, that trumps all logic and you push it through? And that's the central question of the book. And the real point to the book, and this is one that our listeners are very used to hearing me say, which is it gets into my central thesis on on how politics work, which is every policy output is the result of a political input. Every politician makes every decision solely based on the next election and nothing else. And they will do what you want in one of two cases and one of two cases only. If they believe that doing what you want will help them win their next election, they'll work with you. If they believe that they could lose their next election, if they don't do what you want, they'll work with you. And if neither of those are true, you are completely irrelevant. So the real key to the campaign for Lisa and Nick is how do they make sure that the mayors of the three cities, so Don Pierce in Austin, uh, Julian Estes in Los Angeles, and Joe Navarro in New York, and the city councils and everyone else, feel like legalizing flying cars 
will either help them win the next campaign, or if they don't do it, people will be so pissed off that it could cost them. So what are the human stakes of the story? You just told the plot, but what's at stake for the characters? You know, so Nick and Lisa. So, so Nick, um, and I think this is on the book jacket, so without giving too much away, Corey's been <laughs> warning me not to do that. Um, you know, get, gets into legal trouble very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's in a lot of debt. Um, he has a weird gambling addiction, which is he invests in early stage tech startups without really doing much diligence and falls Just lottery tickets basically. deep into debt yeah. into the into the Russian mob, uh, who he's borrowing money from to to pay the to pay the uh, to pay the startup investments. And now the VIG's really high. Um, so so for Nick, it's like. He's got to figure out how to use this thing to bail him out and make him whole again, right? Mm-hmm. For Lisa, it is this is where she wants to prove herself as the person who, not as Nick's protege, but Lisa Lim, who ran one of the most complex, high-profile camp, you know, regulatory campaigns in, in U.S. history and in tech history, and won. Um, for Susan Howard, um, it's her second startup. The first one, Bad Shit Insurance, failed. Bad Shit Insurance is a on-demand insurance startup where. Um, no matter what sort of hairy situation you're getting into through dynamic pricing, you can get insurance. So if you're going to Somalia, you could like, as you're landing, get kidnapping insurance. This, this sounds like an idea is. you actually had at some point. Like, um, yeah, a little bit, right. but not not enough to run with. Um, and uh, Susan's mom is the she started off as the parking lot queen or king of Reno, and eventually became the largest parking lot owner in the U.S. She's not a character in the book directly. But she looms large in Susan's mind, and Susan, unlike a lot of start founders, doesn't need the money. She's very, very wealthy, um, but she needs to prove herself, right? And so it's about that. Um, Yegveni Kolnikov is the chief engineer at Flight Deck, and he's an immigrant from Estonia. Um, and for him, this is his chance to really make it big in the U.S. He was at SpaceX uh, making a nice living and met Susan, and she recruited him to take this big jump. If Flight Deck succeeds, he will be a very, very rich guy. Um, if it fails, uh, he will not. And this becomes a sort of binary struggle for him where he wants to be successful, but he also understands the the human risk of putting people in flying cars that may or may not uh, be okay to do, depending on whether you care more about a launch and growth metrics or, or human lives. Um, and then a few others. Um, Victor Villanova is the uh, taxi medallion king of New York City, uh, the leader of the Russian mob in Brooklyn, um, and uh, has his fingers in lots of different pots, um, very engaged politically. And Victor, he's just doing his thing, a little modeled on like Whitey Bulger and kind of that Jack Nicholson character in The Departed. Um, and then two FBI agents, uh, Sarah Rosario and Justine Wheeler, um, Ros- oh, they're my favorites, the FBI agents. Rosario is kind of middle-aged, and she's just kind of had a middling career. She's never really had a big case, um, doesn't really get a ton of respect from her colleagues. Um, and, and part of her just wants to ride it out, and part of her would like to sort of break through. And then Justine Wheeler is young and hyper-aggressive and ambitious. She's also a competitive eater in her spare time and competes in the IFOCE. And... Um, she sees this opportunity where there's this nexus of tech and regulation and politics as not just something that that politicians and regulators have to think about, but there's plenty of things that go wrong from a legal standpoint too. And, and her argument is this is a real opportunity for her and Rosario to you know advance their careers and get into some interesting stuff. And so there's that tension between the two of them, which is how much risk they choose to take for themselves over the course of the of their investigation. So let's talk about um, work habits, how you fit this into the rest of your life. We, we, we mentioned this, the, the writing of the TV scripts while you're on Safari. But as a basic thing, how did you do this 
where did it sort of fit into your life? Yeah, I mean, I started it um, during COVID, and I think I, I had a, in retrospect, emotional reaction to COVID that I wish I hadn't had, which was the part of how I dealt with it was to bury myself in work to a point where I was taking lots of crazy risks. So I did a lot of things that got started in that period of time, some of which succeeded, but a lot which failed. So the novel got started, that succeeded. PT Network got started, that succeeded. The Gotham Book Prize got started, that succeeded. Our sort of pivot to Universal School Meals got started, that succeeded. But at the same time, um, I did a SPAC that failed completely. I did Exalt, which is a tele-religion startup that failed completely. Uh, we ran Andrew Yang for mayor. That didn't work out. Um, and, and I think that I was sort of just dealing with it by being as active as I could be. So that's where I started working on the novel. But, you know, writing a novel is really hard. I've written three books now. And um, the novel is the hardest by far because how do you structure this thing, right? Like with, with The Fixer, it was a memoir. So it was actually really easy to write. It's like, well, then I did this, then I did that. Here's another funny story. Um, and the mobile voting book, while harder to write because it was more substantive than The Fixer, you know, we did research and I, I plotted out with, with my publisher kind of what I wanted to cover and then I wrote about it, you know? Whereas with this, like, and you've read multiple versions of this. I mean, the story at one point was even much more sprawling than it ended up being, right? And a lot of this was how do you kind of keep pairing it back into something that is comprehensible and that readers can you know, wrap their arms around? Um, because there was 20 more subplots that I could have gone into that for me were interesting. Um, and so that's kind of how I got into doing it. And then, look, what I have found is, at least for me, when I have a writing project going, I am happier. Now, I am still results-oriented enough, as much as I'm trying to, to adjust that a little bit in my life, that I don't want to just write for my own benefit. I want it to be published somewhere, right? Um, so uh, it helps when that, that writing project is, is part of a book deal or something else, not, not because of the money, because I'd be much better off, you know, focus on something else more lucrative if, if that's what I wanted to do with my time. But... Um, but so, you know, but I know that it makes me happy and especially with fiction, and this is kind of what was happening on the, the, the Jeep in, in Africa, the plot, the questions, how do you work this thing out? How do you work that out? It's kind of going through the back of my mind at all times. In fact, it's funny, I, I've got, you know, obviously a, a, a very varied schedule over the course of the day or the week where, you know, the majority of my time is spent on, on our venture capital fund, but I've got the foundation and I teach and I write and I podcast and all this other stuff. And um, I have to sort of jump from thing to thing over the course of the day because it's only would make the schedule work. The only time where I really wish I could just cancel everything and write is when I'm writing fiction because if I'm into it, it's all I actually want to do with my time. So how did that work in terms of your actual day? Were you up at five in the morning cranking it out I mean, for I'm three a, hours? I'm a, or? No, I mean, it, like Paul Zach or whatever. No, like I'm, 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 I'm up at five anyway. Um, what I found was if I needed to write something that I had to figure a lot of it out, then I needed a chunk of time, right? Whether it was a weekend, an evening, you know, a, 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 a morning from five to eight or whatever it was. But if it was more just sort of advancing the plot, um, I could sit down for half an hour between meetings and write, you know, five pages of dialogue or whatever it is. And then I also found that just over the course of the day, I was constantly kind of realizing things just in taking notes, you know, in the middle of a meeting, I'd be like, oh, wait. And then I'd like make a quick note on my phone. So, um, you know, it was sort of an ongoing process. And look, the, the bigger thing is, I think what, I, what I've what i realized, I was talking to my friend uh, 
Rob Gallagher about this. Rob's like a super successful child uh, psychologist and was trying to figure out how do you balance all the different things in your life. And um, what I said is it took me a very long time to get to this place, but there's 168 hours in the week. I have to get everything done within the span of 168 hours. All of my work, childcare, anything personal, sleep, whatever else is needed. And how I divide those up doesn't really matter. It just has to work for me. So I work out with my trainer at 9.30 in the morning on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays for years. I had this like <laughs> in my head, this like story built in so that if I ran to someone I knew, I could explain why I was at the gym and not working. And then finally, like, it doesn't fucking matter, right? But it took me years to get comfortable with that. And when I look at it as a 168-hour block of time, and look, you know, I have a, a great team um, that helps schedule everything that I do, so it obviously makes my life really efficient because I'm able to basically not spend time on anything that I don't really want to deal with. Um, but, you know, when I look at it in that block, and it's just it's got to get done, and I'm not worried about what's supposed to be happening at specific hours, um, it seems to work out. So you might be at your desk uh, at Tusk Strategies or Tusk Ventures or whatever the whole thing, Tusk Holdings, yeah. <laughs> the whole empire, and three in the afternoon, you might be cranking on your novel. That's possible, possible right? Yeah, right. totally. And, right. I, you know, and it's equally possible that at 6 a.m. I'm reading an investment committee memo or, you know, doing diligence or, or something. So there's no, like, 1,500 words a day no, kind of thing? No, right. but I, I do write pretty fast. Right. Um, and I think I rely on that. And I think that sort of, ironically, by going to work in politics instead of writing, I think it actually made me a faster writer because um, – when I worked for the Parks Department, my first job out of college, Henry Stern was the Parks Commissioner. Not only did I have this personal goal that we would issue um, one press release per day, so more than 365 a year, but we also had a daily uh, newsletter called The Daily Plant, and I wrote The Daily Plant. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was probably like 1,000 words, 1,500 words every day, right? You know, I had to make up something. Um so I'm banging it out. And then when you went, went to work for Chuck Schumer doing his comms, Chuck is the most aggressive sort of politician in the world when it comes to getting attention. And um, so I was just pumping shit out left and right for him too. You know, press releases, speeches, whatever I could think of. And then a little less of that when I went into work for Mike and then I went to be deputy governor. Um, but even then, like when I was, was deputy governor, I was still writing Rod's big speeches. Like I would write the state of the state address. I would write the budget address. I would... You know, in part because I was figuring out the policies that I wanted to pursue through the writing process. But I think I just wrote so much so quickly that I learned how to do it, almost the way that maybe a journalist does. And so banging out, like when I was writing the voting book, basically I did that over the course of 10 weekends, I would say. And I was basically trying to do 5,000 words a weekend. And it was a long weekend, but I, I mean, long as in not like an extra day, just like long, a lot of work, but I got it done. So um, I have two questions, two yeah. more questions, and then maybe we'll talk about Mayor Adams for a second. Um, uh, what? Try to distill it into one single piece of advice you'd give to like someone who's a professional person or has a, a taxing job of any kind, and they have a they have a let's say it's a writing project, but maybe it's something else, yeah. like a like something they like a passion thing that they want to pursue uh, on their own time. What's what's one and try to think as specifically as possible. What's what's yeah, one thing you don't tell make excuses for why you can't do it? Just fucking do it, right? Right, and if it's twenty minutes on the subway or half an hour at your desk or whatever it is, find a way to be productive because either the words pile up or whatever it is piles mm -hmm. up or it doesn't, right? And you could have the best excuses in the world, and great, you know what? Nobody gives a shit, right? Nobody <laughs> wants to hear your excuses. Nobody wants to hear your complaints. 
either you achieve it and you do it or you don't. Um, and if it is that meaningful to you, you just have to do it and just make it work no matter what. Okay. Final question before Adams. Um, so the book exists. It's a thing. Yeah. Obviously, it's now in print and all that. Well, and, um, and note, what did I send you yesterday? It was so exciting. Oh, yeah. Oh, you, well, why don't you mention it? So we, uh, as of yesterday. Um, I can't believe we didn't which say like, it's the you know, top of the podcast. The, 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 land, the one-eyed man in the land of the blind or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> the one-eyed man is king, right? King. Yeah, right. we were number one on Amazon. New releases for political fiction. I think we were number six in satire. Um, and uh, that's pretty cool. Now, I think that might mean we sold like 17 books on Amazon we yesterday. More. <laughs> but but whatever it is. Wait, uh, do you know the total? We've sold more than 17. Trust well, let's, me. What is it? No, we don't We don't know because I, oh. my publisher sent me a very happy email yesterday. And I wrote back and said, how many books do we sell? And she said, oh, we won't know until later in the week. Oh, okay. um, but, um, but nonetheless, uh, one, thank you to everyone who has bought it. Two, I would say... If you are a listener of this podcast and you like this podcast, it, you should really like the novel, and I would really appreciate it. Uh, we try very hard to make this podcast fun. We don't sell you anything. We don't do ads. Um, but I would really be grateful if people would consider ordering it. So, so it comes out today. Yep. So tell people how they can get it today mm -hmm. and where you're going to be over the month. Sure. So um, we're doing kind of a, a dual staging approach for releasing it. So today, November 7th, it comes out on Kindle. It comes out on Audible. I uh, can't wait to hear the uh, audio version. And uh, oh, when does it come out on audio? Tomorrow. Today. Oh, today. Tomorrow, today. today. Yeah. You, you haven't heard any of it? No, I asked for it over the weekend, and they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, All right. Uh, okay. Hands off, buddy. Yeah. Um, I think they thought maybe I would try to like make last minute changes or oh, something. Yeah, I, yeah. Didn't, I just wanted I just had time. Yeah, they must have, they it. probably do have yeah. things like that. Um and then and then in indie bookstores um around the country, um, different cities. And if you go on what what website could you find? Bradleytust.com. Um uh, obviously here at P and T Knitwear. Um and then it comes out on Amazon uh, November twenty eighth. Um, but if you pre order it now, it'll you'll, it'll arrive at your home on the the 28th. Um, so yeah, we're doing a bunch of events. So so tonight at P&T Knitwear, um, next week in Los Angeles at Zippy's Bookshop in Santa Monica. Is that next Wednesday? Thursday. Next Thursday? Yeah, with Julia Marsh from Politico, California. Okay. So she's interviewing me in there. And then we're doing an event in Georgia or Florida? DC. No, no. But oh, the for, oh, the, uh, with uh, state government leaders from across the country. Yeah, but Amelia that's not Island. open to the public. It's right? not open to the public. Okay. Um, you mean that everyone will be like watching on live stream to, no to live see what stream. the state government leaders no. have to think? Um, and then Kramer Books in DC uh, on November 29th. And one of the fun things about that is the person interviewing me is my brother-in-law, Josh Gottheimer. Uh, Josh, I think Wait, can we do that as a, as a podcast? You and Josh? We've been trying to get um, Josh on the podcast. I think we could. We, just, you know, we have to figure out the recording situation since it'll be in DC and not, not here at P&T. But um, yeah, so Josh is going to interview me uh, about the book, and we'll have a conversation, which should be fun. Josh, is, as you know, is a member of Congress, representing the 5th District of New Jersey, the, the uh, founder and head of the Problem Solvers Caucus. The last good politician in America. The last good politician in America. So, um, so those are some. And then, you know, I got yesterday some people in Atlanta asked me to come down, and uh, we've been getting invites for— um, you know, other places around the country. Oh, uh, we're going to speak at the Iowa Writers Workshop. I'm really excited about that. Wow. University of Chicago. Very so. prestigious. Iowa. It was cool. So they reached out to me because they were raising money and they're like, okay, this guy, you know, loses all his money at his bookstore or got some book prize. And I said to them, <laughs> listen, listen, I uh, love what you're doing, but I'm losing an insane amount of money already on books. I, I can't really help you right now. And they kind of said, well, can we meet anyway? I was like, yeah, sure. And I gave them the book. Uh, I think it was in it was galley form, which is PDF at that point. 
And they seemed to genuinely really like it. I just wasn't sure if it was like that they really liked it or they just wanted money. But, you know, even after I said no on money, they followed up and asked me to come out there and meet with the writers and speak. And so that seems pretty cool. Yeah, so really cool. I mean, part of it also is this, which is I have a terrible tendency to look ahead to the next thing at all times, right? And it's it's a good tendency in the sense that you get a lot of shit done, but it's a bad tendency about enjoying things in the moment while they're happening. And I've wanted to write a novel my entire life. I've finally done it. Um, and who knows if I'll ever get to write another one again or write one that gets published again. I, I have no idea. So I, I do think that I have to make sure that I let myself enjoy this process. Totally. Um, so the question, the last question on this, so it exists. Um, have you reread it recently or have you ever kind of read it in final, like it's done, you can't touch it form? It, um, and if so, it's very painful. It is? Yeah. Because okay. I catch stuff that I wish I could change. Okay. Um, so, oh, so you're not at that stage yet where you just take pleasure in that kind I, of... I'm looking forward to listening to the audiobook because it's someone else reading it, and right. I'm curious. Um, but I remember when I, for The Fixer, we wrote it, then I recorded the audiobook, and as I'm recording, I'm like, fuck, I wish I could change this, I wish I could change that, and it was yeah. too late to change yeah, yeah. anything. So uh, I'm, I'm somewhat mindful of that, but, but I have been rereading it in the sense of, um, as I'm writing the scripts again now, you know, I'm going back and kind of back and forth between the final draft where it's a software write the script and and the pdf of the book to kind of figure out you know how i want to translate things and so yeah i am uh really happy with it i mean it's not war and peace or crime and punishment or whatever but but it's I think a little it's shorter right a little shorter yeah. yeah uh but i think it's a fun book and and hopefully it's both a fun story and it has something to say um that's wonderful bradley congratulations thank you know you. as as a as and a as a colleague of yours and as a friend i'm, I'm super proud of you and i really Appreciate think it's it. an incredible accomplishment and not just because you have all these other things going on i mean it's really an, a great thing just in and of itself and i'm well, I'm, I'm proud to have been involved being, uh, in a little yeah, way that i was and and you were you were a, a great you know sounding board for a lot of this well it's a, it's a really cool thing i hope people can pick up the book or come by the 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 store or whatever um it's uh it really is it, it really is funny and um entertaining and and there really is there's as Bradley's talked about, really kind of meaning and substance kind of below the satire that I think people really I'm a little get worried that if I do have to write another one, I've used every good joke I ever thought of in this one. Yeah, you might have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, okay, so um, let's uh, let's go on to your, your day job here, yeah. <laughs> or part of your day it's job. It's not even my day, day job, job anymore. Yeah, yeah exactly. Whatever. Another so um, uh, Mayor Adams was uh, down in Washington for a very important set of meetings. He even uh, tweeted a picture of himself on the shuttle. He was really all, important. He was asking the White House for like help on the migrant crisis. Like the like, biggest problem he's much, got yeah. until suddenly he had a bigger problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so so just walk us through. I, I, I'm probably our listeners outside New York are not following this at all. So just give a little bit of a of a of a state yeah. of the situation. So, so the FBI raids the home of Brianna Suggs. She is Mayor Adams' chief fundraiser, um, works not for city government, but outside as his fundraiser and as a lobbyist. And the FBI storms into her home. They take her laptop. They take files. The press keeps reporting that there's like one prominently titled, entitled Eric Adams. Um, and what we have learned a little bit is it seems like it's based around the notion of a straw donor scheme where Adams, for some reason, has these very close ties to the country of Turkey. He brags about this a it's lot. so he's, weird, He's been right? there six or seven times. And apparently the Turkish, according to at least the, what they're investigating, would be the possibility that the Turkish government colluded with the Adams campaign to provide money for Adams' run for mayor and circumvented campaign finance laws through a straw donor scheme. What a straw donor scheme means is 
you know, there are limits to uh, how much money you can donate to a candidate for mayor. It's like, I forget, I forget twenty-seven. I don't. I forget the number now. But whatever it is, it's a couple thousand dollars. Um, let's say I wanted to actually donate fifty thousand dollars. I couldn't legally, right? But if I wrapped up, rounded up fifteen friends and they each put it in their you name, you could give me the fifteen to get right. to. to and, then, and so you that, don't do that, though. No, but that's illegal. But um, but that's effectively what they seem to be investigating. Um, so that the, the bad news for Adams is. You know, it's pretty bad when the FBI storms someone's house of, of your chief fundraiser. The, on the other hand, I'd have to say, and Corey and I were kind of met up on the street when we were walking over here and had this conversation. I don't know if it's quite as bad as people think, right? In the sense of just where it stands. So one is there needs to be a quid and a quo for, for the crime to have occurred. So let's assume the quid is there. Let's assume the quid is the straw donor scheme or... Adam's taking all these lavish vacations to Kazakhstan or Turkey. Like, he ain't paying for that out of his pocket. So, like, you know, there's stuff like that, right? I doubt he's paying for every penny out of his pocket. Um, so there's that that's potentially the quid. But the quote is they have to receive something from Adams in his public official capacity in return. I haven't seen any evidence of that, right? I mean, he's done a ton of patronage hiring. You haven't seen all the things that New York City's done that it takes— it, For the, the Turks? Yeah, for the No, the now Turkish look, government. there are some sketchy contracts. The, right. the DOCGO contract, which was hundreds of millions of dollars dealing with the migrant crisis, certainly seemed very questionable. It was the New York City controller uh, tried to reject it. Um, I think it's under investigation. So, um, but, but there's no quo that I'm aware of yet, number one. Number two, what I've learned, and a lot of this was through my experience with Blagojevich, is voters have a real line in their mind between campaign finance violations and personal yeah, enrichment. That's a good and point. when it's campaign finance, they just don't really care. Yeah. Um, well, the rules are just so bizarre. And, yeah. yeah. Whereas if, if you're putting money in your pocket— that's a different story. Now, taking luxury vacations, maybe George Ryan, who was the governor of Illinois before Blagojevich, went to jail specifically for luxury vacations. Um, so it, it it can and does happen. Um, but overall, I remember once we had a, a focus group heading into the 06 re-election for Blagojevich, and we were like in a suburb of Chicago, and uh, I'm there with Bill Knapp, who's one of the most famous ad makers in the country, and Fred Yang, who's one of the most famous posters, and Fred is running the focus group. And he asked them, and Blagojevich at this point has been under investigation. People have been indicted around him, you know, plenty of smoke. And, and he asked them, and their basic response, now this is Chicago, but still, was like, well, did he did he get rich personally? And the answer was no. There really was no evidence of that at all. And they were like, I don't care. Right. And, and Knapp literally turned his chair around and said, we won. Right. And it was true. Um, so, yeah. so I don't know that there's personal enrichment for Adams. I don't know that there's a quo. So there's a lot of smoke. There's probably a lot of quid. Um, we'll see where it goes. Obviously, he's worried enough that he canceled a really important meeting in Washington. Yeah, he freaked out. To, like. to fly home because he didn't want to apparently have to talk to someone on the phones at the risk that the phones were being bugged by the FBI. So who knows? And I will say this. People very, very, very rarely go to jail for somebody else. Everybody flips. That Daly was the only person where some people didn't flip and actually did the time for him. But other than that, uh, people always, always flip. And so... I don't know how loyal Brianna Suggs is. I don't know what she has on Adams, but in my well, she's twenty five years old, so it's hard to see her just right. In my experience, if it's you can spend you know the rest of your twenties and thirties in prison, or you can just tell the truth about somewhat someone much more powerful than you is telling you to do, and you were just following right. orders, they typically flip. So there could but be some more. Bad there could be, but I don't know whether she has anything or not. So we'll see where it goes. With all that said, unless it's personal enrichment, let's say Adams is indicted on campaign finance stuff. 
I don't see him resigning. I mean, Bob Menendez literally at gold fucking bars. No, no, I, I think the resigned. resigning thing is really hard to imagine. But on the other hand, well, does, I, it, does it provide an opening for a, maybe, for a but, real but, challenge? But, but he doesn't. I can't see him resigning. I can't right. see Governor Hochul, who is very reliant on the black vote. Um, for her re-election, removing Eric Adams, absent right. something really in- incredibly egregious. And it takes, what, at least 18 months from the arrest until the, tr- the, the trial. So I don't see any world where Adams, absent something really crazy, doesn't finish his first term. Right. Um, it is possible that if he personally That's is That's a pretty indicted, low bar, though, I have to say. Like, Yeah, but just if we're, where we are in the—we're we're finishing up year two of his mayoralty right now. So I think by the time this all got wrapped up, it's too it, late it for anyone to really the, the first term. Right. Um, and then we'll see if somebody runs. You know, typically speaking, you know, New York City mayors win re-election unless crime is really bad and quality of life is really bad, or if they are personally indicted for something like personal enrichment. So if that happens to Adams, and look, the city's not in great shape anyway, right? Uh, crime is okay, but but has been a lot better other t- times. The city's quality of life feels pretty shitty right now. You know, all the illegal weed shops, all the scaffolding, all the, 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 the junkies whacked out on fentanyl, you know, the muggings, everything else. So, and a lot of shootings. So, it's possible that if one of those two things materializes in an even worse way, Adams could be vulnerable. But look, I thought this with de Blasio in 2016, uh, where there was much more of a quo with de Blasio. He was getting money from donors, and then they were getting contracts, and they were getting city money and, and city benefits in different ways. And I built a campaign to try to get rid of him called New York City Deserves Better. Um, and it was focused on the notion that he would get indicted, or at least his top people would get indicted. And that would create the opening for someone to primary him and win. And he didn't get indicted because the bar to indict the sitting mayor of New York City is very high. And even when the U.S. attorney at the time and the DA at the time said, we believe he violated the spirit of the law, they didn't feel like they had enough hard evidence to bring the case. And so given that I've learned that lesson the, the hard way, I, I still think that reports of Eric Adams' demise are a little uh, premature. Well, that's the perfect place to leave it. Bradley, congratulations again. Thank you. Uh, come by the store tonight for yeah, uh, the book party, Tuesday, November 7th. Right. And check out bradleytusk.com where you can buy the book now or Amazon on November 28th. Cool. Thanks, guys. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.